Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who needs to figure out inbound marketing and sales for my side projects and in my spare time, I want to find out why HubSpot is in Asia. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia. And today I have JD Sherman, President and Chief Operating Officer of HubSpot. Welcome JD and it's great to have you here. Thanks, it's great to be here. Yeah, you came all the way from the US to Singapore and Actually, I'm aware of HubSpot. In fact, I've actually heard a very interesting talk that was done by one of the co-founders, Damesha, in the Stanford E-Corner series about culture of HubSpot. And I think that was one of the more interesting conversations that I've heard in the Stanford E-Corner series. So I thought it would be great to have this conversation. But before that, I want to start to get to know you better. How did you start your career? I actually started my career in finance roles. I went to business school and concentrated in finance and econometrics of all things. And I spent the first 15 years of my career in IBM in various finance roles. After 15 years at IBM and meeting my wife who lives in the Boston area, we really tried to make an effort to move to the Boston area. And I got an opportunity to be the chief financial officer of a company called Akamai Technologies based in Boston. Did that for about six or seven years. And while I was in Boston, I met Brian and Darmesh, who had this very interesting startup called HubSpot. They had made a really interesting observation that the way people live, work, shopped, and bought had been fundamentally changed by the internet, but marketing and sales had not changed to keep up with the buyers. And so they were building a company to sort of solve that problem to help, particularly mid-market businesses solve that problem. So I got very interested in that and I joined early on at HubSpot and I've been there about seven years now. It seems that you have a very long stint with each of your career roles and actually what's interesting, Akamai is also a very interesting tech company that has emerged from Boston. In fact, they do a lot with network connectivity. I just want to ask, I mean, given that you have gone through a corporate career in IBM and Akamai and then subsequently you moved to a startup, what are the most interesting lessons you can share with my audience about your career journey? Yeah, sure. Obviously, there are quite a few differences between IBM and the startup where I ended up with at HubSpot. And I think Akamai was an interesting step in between because Akamai was kind of a startup, a restartup, I would almost call it when I joined. Akamai had barely survived the dot-com bust because most of its customers had gone out of business as a content delivery network for the emerging online commerce companies, but survived that and was really starting to get into growth mode and really take off. And so participated. So I was I was around at Akamai while we were really investing for growth. And that was a learning experience, quite a different approach to take when you're trying to build something rather than trying to optimize something, which I think at, at IBM, arguably, we we're market leading position in some sort of legacy areas. And we we're kind of optimizing around that versus at Akamai, we were sort of starting to build. And I took a lot of those lessons with me to HubSpot. I kind of joined HubSpot a little bit after the sort of traditional startup period where a company is still trying to find its product market fit. And HubSpot had just found that, frankly, I would not be that helpful to a company trying to find product market fit. But what HubSpot needed help with and something that I'm passionate about is sort of finding business model fit, like having a scalable business model that allows you to bring the product that you're super proud of and has a great role in the marketplace, solves an important customer problem, bring that to lots and lots of customers. And so that's what we've been working on really for the six or seven years that I've been around. And so that comes to the main subject of the day. I want to talk about HubSpot because I'm familiar with the company. Just a quick introduction. HubSpot is a developer and marketer of software products for inbound marketing and sales. It was founded by Brian Halligan and Damesha in 2006. 
The products and services are aims to provide tools for social media marketing, content management, web analytics, and search engine optimization. It's currently listed in New York Stock Exchange and the market capitalization is approximately based on the, these few days numbers is about US $5 billion. Obviously, there's a very brief intro. I would like to know more about the company. JD, can you introduce the backstory behind HubSpot and the mission and the vision of the company? Sure. As I sort of referenced before, Brian and Darmesh, our two co-founders that you mentioned, were students together at MIT. Brian, on the, uh, as well as a student, was working with, with some VC firms to help their company sort of take off, you know, start to grow, because Brian's background was a sales and marketing background. And what he noticed was they had lots and lots of money, and they were running a very traditional marketing playbook, spending a lot of money on ads, spending a lot of money on lists, and emailing those lists, cold calling customers, and it just wasn't working that well. At the same time, Darmesh, former startup founder, had a blog called On startups where he was creating remarkable content and the interest in that blog was growing very rapidly. And what they realized was Darmesh had the right formula for creating an audience for his blog that could be applied to businesses. And what they started to think about was that the traditional playbook they started to call outbound marketing which is about interrupting people and it's about renting time and space from somebody else's audience with advertising. Whereas what they created was an inbound marketing playbook, which is about creating remarkable content, creating an asset, and then drawing people to your business with that asset. So that's really what they set off to do. The, the second problem that they had to solve in order to bring that to millions of businesses was that was a fairly difficult playbook. You had to tie together a lot of applications to make it work. You needed a website, obviously. You needed a blog. You needed a content management system. You needed email tools. You needed a CRM. And so what we've done over the years is build that platform that now 50,000 companies use to do their marketing sales and now services, what customer service as well. Obviously, from its startup days, it was actually focused on a specific set of problems and it's evolved over the time. So what is the current mission and vision of the company then? Has it also evolved as well? It has indeed, because we think that the, the way people live, workshop and buy continues to evolve. Our mission is really to help millions of organizations grow better. And we thought very hard about that mission. I mean, every word kind of has meaning. So if you unpack it, the first part is help. It's one thing to provide software, but we think that our customers also want help and a methodology, the inbound methodology to help drive their business. And, and we provide that. Millions of organizations is an important part of our mission to us because we're not just focused on the Fortune 500. We're focused on the mid-market, the millions of companies that really make an economic difference in economies all around the world. And then grow better, we think is very important as well, because a lot of businesses can grow in short-term ways, in ways that are not healthy, whether it's cajoling customers into buying or doing unnatural things. And that's not, we don't think durable growth. We think the right way to do it is to grow better, use the inbound methodology to delight your customers, add value to them, add value for them before you expect to extract value from them. That's sort of a fundamental premise of the inbound methodology. And so we're trying to pull all that together for millions of organizations. Initially, the big sort of opportunity for those organizations was to get found on the internet using inbound marketing where it's not about a big wallet to pay for a lot of advertising. It's about the size of your brain and the content you can create and the way you can nurture and have a dialogue with the you know, hundreds of thousands of prospects that would come to your website. That opportunity is still there, but I think there's a new one emerging, which is to create a really delightful customer experience for your customers because compared to, say, five or 10 years ago, word of mouth in terms of how you market your company and sell your products is so much more important 
it's even more important than the word of your own marketing. And so you have to create that experience and turn your customers into promoters for your brand and leverage that. And so what we've done is we've sort of extended our mission to helping our customers create that awesome customer experience. What's your current role and coverage for HubSpot then? And as my role for chief operating officer, I have all the business responsibilities with the exception of sales, actually. We have a chief sales officer who reports to Brian Halligan as well. And I sort of think about my job as making sure that our mission and vision is clearly articulated, that we kind of have a plan that we're confident will help us achieve that mission and that we're executing well against that plan. And the two key elements of making that happen are number one, alignment across a team that's very rapidly growing and functionally aligned. So sales, marketing, services, product, et cetera, and a culture that really encourages smart people to come work at HubSpot and do their best work. From our initial conversation, you have talked about the customers of HubSpot being the millions of small and medium businesses out there who may need to do inbound marketing and sales and they need to be discovered. I'm pretty curious, what are the major products and services that HubSpot can provide for the customers? And maybe you can walk me through uh, an example of how, how that works. Sure. So I would start with our CRM, which is a free product, and you can get started with it. You can sign up and get using HubSpot for free with a fully functional CRM. And that's become a really important aspect of our go-to-market strategy. When you're trying to reach millions of organizations, you have to have broad reach and you have to be able to do it in a cost-effective way. And we think you should add value before you extract value. So we have a CRM platform that's free to use. And then as our customers start to adopt and use that CRM and add team members to using that CRM, They can then buy our products that sort of sit on top of the CRM. So we have a marketing hub, starts with a a $50 a month starter product all the way up to a $3,200 a month enterprise product. And that's where you would do, you know, your email marketing, your marketing automation, your blogging, your search engine optimization, et cetera. We also have a set of sales tools that call our sales hub. Again, a, a starter level all the way up to an enterprise level. And that's where the more advanced sales functionality where team management, pipeline management, forecasting, reporting, et cetera. And we've just this year added a third hub or a service hub, which is about customer service and taking care of your customers. And that includes things like tickets, food sentiment analysis with the ability to do a, an NPS survey, for example, and act on that. And it includes a knowledge base as well. So we really have sort of a full suite of solutions that help your business grow better. And our objective is to get lots and lots of businesses to start with us using that free CRM and over time, get them using the entire growth suite. And the other thing that's interesting about that is we know we're successful when they're doing that and they're integrating our product through our APIs with other tools that they're using in their business, whether they're an e-commerce company integrating with Shopify or they're integrating with uh, Slack or other tools for communication and collaboration. We want to sort of be the center of gravity for for those mid-market companies. Assuming that most of these businesses actually use their CRM, their customer service and sales within your platform, you actually will acquire data. So would you be actually doing a lot more with data or even automating those processes for your customers as well? Like what most AI companies are doing these days? That's right. We're starting to apply AI and machine learning to the tools that our customers use. We sort of have two thoughts about AI. For us, particularly in the mid-market, we don't think about AI or, or machine learning as a product in and of itself. Like We don't ask our customers to 
buy our AI product. Instead, we think about the problems that it can solve for our customers. Like we introduced HubSpot Conversations, which is a set of tools across email, chat, and you know, Facebook Messenger, et cetera. And we can use AI and machine learning to sort of enable smart chatbots on your website, smart chatbots in Facebook's ecosystem, et cetera. So that's one example of how we use it. The interesting thing for us in the second part of this is a lot of what we're about is automation. So marketing automation and what automation allowed people to do was take go from email marketing 1.0, where you sent, you got a list of people and you sent them all the same email to marketing automation where you could, as a smart human being, do some smart segmentation and try to be more personalized. So now where you can use machine learning to actually do a credible job of automating and responding and sensing and learning on the fly based on all the data that you have about your customers and their needs and what's working and what's not working. So I think it's sort of a natural evolution of the automation process that the path that we've been on for you know 12 years now. So I'm very curious, you're now in Singapore. So what brought you to Asia? Yes, we had a, a great event yesterday called Grow here in Singapore, where we had about a thousand people come and talk, listen to us, but more importantly, a bunch of other speakers from really great companies in the area about how to grow your business. We had a bunch of our partners there as well. So I came over, timed my visit to be part of that event, which was great. But also I try to get to all of our offices at least every now and then to check in on the team, make sure that I'm hearing firsthand what's happening away from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we're based, and also make sure that they understand sort of our mission and goals and figure out how we can help them achieve those goals. So I'm leaving from here today and going to Sydney, where we have an office. And then after a few days in Sydney, I'm actually headed to Tokyo. So I'll hit all three of our Asia-Pac offices on this trip. So what's the geographical coverage of HubSpot in Asia-Pacific? I mean, there's the Singapore, Tokyo, and also Australia office. But are you actually almost everywhere because given that your customers can just sign up using your CRM from wherever they are? That's right. I think we have customers in 70 countries around the world, and that includes you know, all the, all the countries here in, in Asia Pacific. In setting up HubSpot for the Asia Pacific region, do your products and services need to be localized for the Asian markets? And if so, can you share some examples? Sure. Well, the obvious example is that in many markets, we have to localize for language. And we didn't do that for a long time. We really just started localizing our products so that you can use it in Japanese, for example, about two years ago. And we entered right, that's right when we entered the Japanese market. As far as customization of the product for local usage, we don't do a lot of that. The product itself is fairly customizable. So as a user of the product, I can use it in ways that make more sense for my customer base or my geography, but it's largely the same product because the problem that we're solving for our customers is largely the same around the world, I'm finding. And that's why we're so excited about the growth that we have outside the U.S., we're still a relatively young company, close to $500 million in revenue. We get about 37% of that revenue from outside the United States. So what we've been able to do is take the sort of learnings that we had early on selling primarily in the United States and extend it globally. One interesting thing that have came up through our conversation is that you joined HubSpot when the company has actually found product market fit. And I think this comes to this point about scaling a company, which is something you are very good at doing, I'm sure. So maybe the first thing I want to ask is, what are the do's and don'ts for scaling a company globally? Yeah, I think you want to be careful about going too fast in any one place. The, all the mistakes that we made at HubSpot, and we made plenty of them, 
were always when we went too fast in one direction and the product team maybe got out ahead of our sales and marketing and services coverage or the sales team in a certain geography got out ahead of the product before we could support customers in that range. And what ended up happening in, in all of those examples was we would have a bad customer experience. You know, you would start down the path in Japan as, as a great example. And while we localized the product, that was great. But when customers called to get help, we didn't have the resources to support them. So they would be frustrated and they would cancel their contracts. And that, that was a lesson learned there that you have to, when you're scaling, you have to make sure that all the parts of the business are really aligned. And when you do things, you have to think about not only, well, is this going to get the job done for product localization, but is this going to scale across the entire company when we take it uh, into new markets? So we tend to go fast and make mistakes. That's I want to keep that bias in the way that we operate as a company that comes from you know, the startup mentality. But as you start to scale, you have to start thinking about alignment, I guess is the best word I can think about. So that when you do launch in a new geography or launch a new product line, the whole company is ready to support your customers and you don't leave them with a bad taste in their mouth because you haven't you haven't thought through that. As you also alluded to that while the company already have a f- structure of its own profit and loss and they already have well-set structured products and services that's actually already getting paying customers, how would you introduce a new service or a new innovation into the system then? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing you have to ask is you have to start start with the customer and you have to say, who is this for? Sometimes the answer to that question will be, it's for the same customer that we have today. And my primary goal, therefore, is to get adoption of that product inside of my 50,000 customer install base. In that case, you have a different set of thoughts about what your launch strategy is, your go-to-market strategy, you want to make it really easy to adopt for existing customers, et cetera. And that was really the playbook that we had with our most recent launch with the, of the Service Hub. The second type of uh, discussion is, well, this is really for a new set of customers. I want to attract a new set of customers to my platform. And in that case, you have to start thinking about, well, how are we going to attract those customers? How am I going to take that to market when my brand maybe isn't for those customers? How am I going to onboard those customers and get them started with the product and make sure that they're successful? And that was a little bit of the playbook that we had when we launched our sales product, say three or four years ago, because we knew that the salesperson in an organization had a quite different experience with HubSpot and would have a a different experience than the marketer who was our very loyal customer. And so we had to sort of come at it differently. And that's what actually led us to the idea of a free CRM that that salespeople inside of companies could adopt on their own without having to have a heavy sales evaluation process. My overall recommendation would be ask yourself the very basic question of who is this product or who is this service going to be for? and then solve the rest of your strategy around that question. Depending on when you join a company, I guess it's very different to run a company where you have 10 employees and then 50 and then cross a few hundred to a thousand. What is the optimal way to do it from your experience? Yeah, so I joined HubSpot and then we were about 200 employees and we're uh, over 2,500 now. My observation is that in the early times, what you want to do is you want to look at all your employees and ask yourself the question, how many of our employees are either building 
the product or helping our customers use the product? The answer isn't basically 95% or 99% of our employees are that, you know, you may be, you're probably adding too much structure and you're not, you know, when you start to add structure, you don't get a lot of leverage out of that structure when you're small because there's only so many employees that you can sort of make their job easier. What you want is you want everybody close to the customer getting feedback on how things are going and really rolling up their sleeves. As you start to get to 200, 300, 500 employees, then you know that HR role that wasn't valuable when you had 50 is starting to get really valuable because the scale and the leverage that you get from smart HR practices and the scale and leverage you get from a really good operating system, which is what I, I think we're resp- I'm responsible for inside of HubSpot, then you start to really get leverage. So that I, am, am I... My view is that right around 200, maybe a little a little more than that, that's when you want to start thinking about how can I add some folks to the team that will give the rest of the team leverage that will sort of get like a you know, 50% or 100% improvement out of the sort of scalability of, of all my salespeople, of all my product engineers, et cetera. Can I get that kind of leverage by adding some, some scale and, and some folks who are focused on your operating system and your culture as well? That's really when we started also being really thoughtful about writing down and living up to our culture code because it's easy enough to maintain a culture when there's only a handful of you and you all fit in the same room. But that gets much more challenging when you grow to hundreds of employees and then you have two offices and then 10 offices. You have to have a very thoughtful process to sort of maintain the culture that's so important to your company. What are the bottlenecks and potholes that founders and even company builders like yourself are likely to encounter and how can they be avoided during this scaling process? I think there's no way to avoid them. I will say that there is no perfect way. You're going to have ups and downs and bumps and bruises. And I think the, the overarching advice that I always give is like, you have to identify when things are going wrong quickly and you have to react very quickly and not be worried about what mistakes we're going to make or what mistakes we have made. You just have to sense and respond. And if you can, you know, startups are really good at that because there's only a handful. If you can sort of build that into the way you operate as you get bigger and bigger, you know, you're going to be fine. So the, so the underpinnings of that are culture, obviously, like you have to have a culture where people aren't afraid to make mistakes. They're not punished for making mistakes. The only thing that they're afraid of or held accountable for is if they hide mistakes and like, don't, don't bring them up to get them solved. That's a, that's a healthy culture, number one. And then number two, you have to try to get a lot of data about what's happening and make that data transparently share it across the company, but also make it useful and actionable. If you're a software company like we are, get a lot of data about how your customers are using your product and obsess about it and try to move the needle on adoption. Try to figure out if customers do this, then they behave the way we want. If they don't do this, then they don't behave the way we want and boil it down to that. I guess the last thing I would say is easy to listen to your customers in the early days. It's easy to drift away from that and stop thinking about your customers so much as you grow and get larger. So you have to try to remain extremely customer focused as an organization. JD, many thanks for coming on the show. And it's good to have you here in Asia and to take a look at it. And I hope to speak to you again, maybe in the next time you can talk a lot more about what HubSpot has done across the businesses in Asia. So in closing, I would like to ask you two questions. Number one, can you recommend a book, podcast or anything else that has impact to your work and personal life? recently? Maybe this is a little self-serving, but we have an event in Boston every year called Inbound. And it's where we talk almost not at all about HubSpot at this event. It's really an industry event, but 
it's where I think a lot of people go and I go to learn about how you can grow your businesses better. So I, I, I highly recommend that. It's a little bit self-serving for sure, but I highly recommend it. And how do my audience find you? You can find me on Twitter at J underscore D underscore Sherman. And I realize underscores aren't awesome for your Twitter handle, but that's the problem when you have initials. And, you know, we, we also, you can find me posting on HubSpot's blog and on our in our, on our Medium channel as well. You can definitely Google me at Bernard Leung and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast and also Spotify now. You can tweet to me, give us your feedback, give us a five-star rating on iTunes to help us for discovery and of course, give us a star on Overcast and Pocket Cast. Most importantly, give us your feedback. Once again, JD, many thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. That was great. That was a lot of fun.